0: I missed being with you last week. Uh, We were in Orlando. I was at a conference, the Wilberforce Weekend Conference, and there also, if you remember, I'd been doing the Colson Fellows Program the last 10 months and was there to be commissioned as a Colson Fellow. It was a wonderful experience. had a great time worshiping with about 1,300 other people, so the singing was really sweet, but always glad to be home. Always great to be home with our family and with you, so I'm glad to be back and to resume our study in the book of First Timothy, so please take out your Bibles this morning, if you would, turn over to First Timothy chapter two, and we are going to go ahead and exposit the first seven verses this morning. as we know, we've been looking at this what's called one of the Pastoral Epistles. It's Paul speaking to a younger man in the faith whom he commissioned to go to the church at Ephesus, Timothy, to set the church aright in Paul's absence. And so, Paul is writing this letter as a means of instruction to what it means to have a proper uh, church and to what it, so what church looks like or what the gathering looks like in its context. And, of course, we've already dealt with false teaching. Uh, Paul began there saying that we need to bring sound doctrine against false teaching. What is sound doctrine? Well, sound doctrine is nothing more than the Word of God as it stands. And so when we thought, think about correcting false teaching, what, what we bring against it is not our opinions, but God's Word. And so that's where Paul began for Timothy. saying, hey, after, the first thing you've got to do is deal with these false teachers in your midst. And then he gave Timothy the reminder of God's mercy of salvation, God's mercy in emboldening Timothy to be a faithful laborer in the fields of Ephesus. And so that we understand what what else is crucial to the life of the church. Well, sound doctrine is one of those things. But the other pillar, of course, is God's mercy compelling us to live and be the church in a culture of death. So this morning, Paul is beginning, beginning to get into how Timothy and the Ephesian church or churches should be worshiping. What does it look like? What does worship in their context, and we could argue in any context, this is applicable to us all, what does it look like, and where do we begin? Well, Paul begins that with prayer, and so that's where we are this morning, looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and so without further delay, let's turn our attention now towards the Scriptures. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word, starting in verse 1, first of all then... Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time? For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth; I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So, when's the reading of God's word? May He add His blessing. Please pray with me, Father. We thank you for this word on prayer. We thank you for drawing us in together as a body of believers to meditate on what it means to be a praying people. And I pray this morning that Your Word would hit its target, that You would pierce us to the very depths of who we are with the truth and beauty of Your Word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. There's a particular story that's recounted. Uh, Martin Luther has a book called Table Talk, or Table Talks, and it's a collection of stories and sayings that were gathered or collated uh, from his time around his dinner table when he would have conversations with different people. One such story was Martin Luther had a table full of guests, and he also kept dogs in his home. And one of the puppies got up on the table and started looking around for morsels to eat. He was looking for some little snack. And Luther was very partial to the puppy, apparently, and it knew it. And so it just kind of paused right in front of him on the table and was just watching him eat, watching hand to mouth, his eyes not moving. Luther even says, "Unblinking." And of course, Luther, finding a spiritual lesson in all this, which is, he was great at, he says this: He says, "Oh, if I could only pray the way this dog watches that morsel, all his thoughts are concentrated on that piece of meat. Otherwise he has no thought, wish or hope." Leave it to Martin Luther to turn a, 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 a very unwanted creature on the table into a spiritual lesson. However, however, we should pray like that. He's got a point. That's how we should pray. What, what is the dog doing? The dog is waiting expectantly. It says, if I do this long enough, that joker's going to give me a piece of meat. Now, I would suggest we not call God that joker, but... It's the idea that are we when we pray, are we praying with expectation? Are we doing it simply as a habit? Are we doing it not really expecting anything? Or are we coming to the table of the Lord saying, I am waiting to receive? Because that's how we should be praying. Now, I'll confess, I don't always pray that way. Sometimes I approach the Lord and go, God, I know you probably don't want to do this, but here's what I'm going to ask for. And it's so an unfaith-filled prayer to do. So may we be like Martin Luther's puppy and expect God to answer. What Paul is doing here is he's taking on a prevalent theme in the Bible. It's prayer. We talked about prayer in Daniel. We were in Romans. We talked about prayer. When I preached through Galatians, we talked about prayer. When I preached through 1 John, we talked about prayer. When we were in Daniel, we talked about prayer because prayer is a prevalent theme in God's Word. And it's not lost on me that it's talked about so much because i think it's easier for christians to read their bibles than it is for them to pray because whether we'd admit it or not sometimes we feel like prayer's not going to do much good or i don't feel like it or why bother god's already going to act anyway well why bother i because god commands it that's why i bother And no, you might not get everything you want, but that's not the purpose of prayer anyway. That's another sermon for another day. Well, it's no coincidence that Paul teaches on prayer after after he teaches on correcting false teaching, (laughs) and he teaches on God's mercy. For Paul, the foundational reality of the Christian life really is prayer. That's foundational. Yes, the Word of God is also foundational, but we need to understand that the Word of God is a pillar. Prayer is also a pillar for the Christian life. When we pray, what are some things we pray for? We pray for God's mercy. That's what Paul uh, kind of hinted at earlier in First Timothy chapter 1. We certainly pray for boldness. God, give me boldness to be a voice in the wilderness. We certainly pray, as James says, we pray for wisdom. Lord, grant me the wisdom to be discerning and discreet and to be prudent we pray for sound doctrine to know what is sound, so I guess that would be wisdom and discernment. The point is, is that we, we're to be praying. We pray. We're a praying people. Prayer is not secondary, it's not an add-on to the faith. No, in Acts chapter two, verse forty two, when we're told that the church was gathering daily, they were there for fellowship for the apostles teaching, the breaking of bread, and prayer. So when you think about the essentials of what it means to be a gathered body, the assembly, the assembly, we're supposed to be preaching. We're supposed to be breaking bread together. We're supposed to be in fellowship, and we are to be praying. Hence, we begin our service with a prayer. We have a pastoral prayer. There's a prayer at the end of the message because we understand the vital nature of what it means to come before God. We examine Paul's instruction here we see clearly that the biblical witness that we are a praying people. Prayer is not optional. We don't pray for just the people that we like or who are like us. We pray for all mankind, those we love and respect and admire, leaders we support, leaders we adamantly disagree with. We pray for them all alike because that's what we're supposed to do As Christians, we pray for people who love and show grace to us. We pray for people who have done evil against us, and that's not an easy prayer to pray, but that's the type of praying people God calls His church to be. We don't get to discriminate in our praying. We need to pray for those who do evil against us and who persecute us. We, Jacob and I, at the conference weekend, we heard a lady who From Romania, uh, an assassin was sent to kill her, and she just said, Hey, I'm gonna share the gospel with this guy, and she did, and he got saved. So, when we think about who we pray for, I mean, aren't we grateful for the people who might have prayed for Paul's conversion? Are you grateful for the people who prayed for yours? I'm grateful for the people who prayed for mine, people who I had done wrong. So, praying is not discriminatory. We pray because that's what Scripture tells us to do. Brad, or, or so, is it easy to pray for people who've done evil against you? No. No, it is not. And sometimes all you can pray is, Lord, please, please rescue this evil person. Amen. And that's good enough. But I suggest, as Paul does here, when he says, supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings for all, literally all mankind. And that word there is encompassing. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning, and it's this. An essential part of Christian worship is fervent prayer. An essential part of Christian worship is fervent prayer. If you read Paul carefully, he lays out aspects of the gospel, God's rescue plan for the sinner, that Christ has come and redeemed His people. And in a sense, He's telling us, be praying, out, be praying gospel principles for people, for mankind. So be praying the gospel for mankind. That's kind of what Paul is driving out here, driving at here. And so when we think about our duty to God and our neighbor, it is prayer. Yes, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're to love our neighbors ourselves. We're also to be in communion with God and laboring, interceding in prayer for our neighbors in the sense that we are asking the Lord's provision for a people who are broken and destitute and needy, as are we all. But we are also seeking to be in communion with God. So prayer is just, as I've said to you before, it's not just about what I get out of it. It's about the relationship that's being built through prayer. In other words, I'm deepening my roots in the Lord when I'm spending time in communion with Him. And this is not a novel concept. For those of us who've been married any amount of time, Rachel and I now 20 plus years, you you begin to understand that the more you spend time with someone, the closer you get. The more that relationship is just sealed and sealed because communion is happening. And the same is true with the Lord. So if we really want deep connectedness with the Lord, beloved of God, it begins with prayer. And prayers don't have to be fancy. They don't have to be academic. They should not, in fact, be those things. They should be quite simple. Because we're not coming to give a monologue, a theological monologue to the Lord. So often we're coming to say, help. And that's how it should be. Well, Paul here, if we want to break this down here, this first four verses here are all kind of about praying and who we pray for and what prayer is. And it's interesting here, the ESV translates this, first of all, then, well, literally, first of all, therefore. The therefore, you get the question we always have to ask us: what is the therefore, therefore? In light of all that we've learned, in light of all that we've Heard about God's mercy, about false teaching, and about uh, how we're to live. So, therefore, since we're to correct false teaching with sound doctrine, since we are to indulge in God's mercy, therefore, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. So, in light of the call to preach truth, pray that it's received. In light of the call to remember God's mercy, pray that it becomes evident to all. So these things connect together. And I love that he says, first of all, he's giving a primacy to prayer. In other words, this isn't secondary. Now, Paul's already told Timothy to preach sound doctrine, and now he's saying equally as important. So first of all, pray. So prayer is a primary task for the Christian. It's a task that is done regularly. So not just when I need help, I call out. No, see, the relationship is being established through regular daily prayer, both personally and corporately when we meet so that when we come to the Lord in prayer, it is a familiar thing. It's not like every so often coming to draw a a loan from somebody here and there. It's daily coming to the Lord in prayer. Well, what he lists here, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Now, when we see that list, please don't think that Paul is trying to give us an exhaustive list here. So the list is not exhaustive. It's the sum, essentially, of what we do before the Lord. So when we come, we express our needs. That's what supplication is. You're asking God to supply what you need. You don't have it. You're not privy to those things. You need the Lord to give them to you. We come, the, or the just general word for prayer here, prayers, we come for communion with God. When we are in prayer, we are in communion with the Lord. We are spending time with Him. And so that may mean adoration, it may mean praise, it may mean some part of supplication. All those things come together in the idea of prayer where we're just spending time in communion with the Lord. So we express needs, we commune with God, we intercede for others. Well, intercessions is an interesting word because literally, literally when we are interceding for people, we're not holding them at arm's length here and just saying, well, I, I hope you get it together, Lord, help them get it together. We actually come alongside them, picture, the, picture their burden like a backpack with a strap hanging off. We grab their backpack, we strap it onto our shoulder, and we begin to bear their burden with them. That is what intercession is to do is to get underneath with them the burden and say, now I'm going to, through prayer and supplication, walk with you so that you don't bear this alone. Beloved of God, that is one of the best, most gracious, loving things you can do is to pray with someone who's burdened and let them know I am standing in the gap with and for you. Some people say, well, I don't like to tell people I'm praying for them because it makes me feel arrogant. Hogwash. It shouldn't make you feel that way. If you're praying for me, I'd love for you to tell me. I would love to be encouraged to know that whatever day or hour or moment you felt the need to pray for me, that you did, and God bless you. Keep doing it, and I'll keep praying for you. So we intercede, we we bear the burden with each other and offer thanks. How lacking, and this is a personal indictment to me, how lacking is thanksgiving I mean, do you ever pause just to give gratitude? We should. Prayer should be about giving thanks to God for the abundance of things that He has done that we could never have accomplished. When I look over my life and I think about my salvation, I look at the family that I've been been given, I look at the life that I've been given, none of that stuff was deserved. None of that stuff was merited. I still walk with a limp. I have issues. My life is not perfect. I'm so grateful to God, and we as Christians need to be more about gratitude. Do you know, if you're like me and you suffer from bouts of anxiety and depression, that one of the practical ways that we get ourselves out so often when we're in those moments, we are focusing on what we don't have? And one of the best things we can do is rise out of that. Thank God for my family. Thank God for the chapel. Thank God for Richard and John, my colleagues, my elders who are God and great and godly men who love me well and love my family well. We can begin to focus on these things that we have been given, and that moment of gratitude begins to buoy our souls. And so we don't have to stay in the muck of what we don't have. Pray. So... He says, Do this for all, uh, ESV says, all people. So we pray for all people, as I said earlier, not just those we like, everybody. We get to pray for everybody here. In fact, I'll tell you a story. When Rachel and I had not been in Trinity, in Jackson, Mississippi, very long, um, a particular lady brought some accusations against me, nothing of an impure nature. Uh, but they were completely and utterly false. She just made them up and went to our elders and made up these accusations. And I had to meet with elders and to defend myself. And can I just be completely frank with you? I struggled with hating her. I was bitter because I was young. Rachel and I were in, I was in seminary we were not rich. We were poor. And I depended on this job as my only income because we had small children and and she just made up lies. And the I remember one of my friends and mentors said, Brad, you need to start praying for this lady. And I looked at him, I was like, Mmm. He said, "Seriously, you got to. That's the only way that you're going to keep your heart from sinking into bitterness and hatred and resentment." And so I did. I began praying for her, and it didn't happen overnight. But in the course of weeks, I was. Uh, just so you know, yes, I was totally uh, vindicated. It, it was very evident that she made this up. But in the course of weeks, it was interesting how my heart for her changed from ugh to. I feel so sorry for you that your life is so wrapped up in this evil and bitterness and hatred and just began to pray that the Lord would release her heart from that. It changed my view of her. It changed my view of the situation. I'm not trying to be the hero because I fail a lot, but in that one instance, I'm so grateful for an older brother in the Lord saying, pray for her and watch what it does for you. And he was right. Then I was freed from bitterness. She had no control over that. I could smile at her if I saw her in the hallways. And really, so we, so we pray. We pray for all people. This, when you see this all here in verse 1, that's the first of four uses of the word all that runs through these seven verses. What Paul is doing is he's getting at the universal nature of the gospel and prayer. So he's kind of getting at this aspect of why do we pray for all peoples? Because the gospel is going to go out to all people, and we're praying for the hearts of those who will receive it. But then he specifies for kings in verse 2, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So... Kings and all in authority, literally, not limited to this, but Paul is saying we need to be praying for this. We should be praying for our leaders. One of the reasons I did that intentionally this morning, because it's part of this passage, and we should be doing that regularly. And not just the leaders that we like, not just the leaders whose politics we agree with, but all leaders. Because ultimately, if God's law is pure and right and true, we would like to see things that are more in line with God's ethic, i.e., we want to see life be sacred, we want to see marriage be sacred and not flippant. We want to see so many th- that, that that so many things that God's law speaks to become reality in legislation. So we should be praying for the people that we agree with and the people that we disagree with. And I love what he says. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. That's interesting, that peaceful and quiet life. Literally that phrase goes together, and it means that we should be praying for our leaders, that they would be free from inner and outer strife. That's the the idea of that phrase right there, that they would be freed from inner and outer strife so that they could be clear-headed and make good decisions about how to lead and govern people. Now, remember, when Paul is telling us this, he's in a sense saying that he prays for none other than Nero Caesar. Nero, the very man who would eventually have Paul executed. And so if Paul could pray for Nero, whom he didn't have very much in common with, we can certainly pray for our leaders whom we may not agree with, and we should. Because, see, Paul prayed for a man who executed him, but Paul is praying for an office, not a person. We pray for the people, true. We pray for the people, but we're praying for that office to be used for the glory of God and for our good. That's how we should be praying. You should be praying that for the elders of this church. You should be praying that for the leaders in our city. We should be praying that for anyone who has a position of authority. And I love how he says it, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What is the fruit that Paul is praying for, is godliness and dignity. Love the best thing we can ever pray for anybody is godliness. Parents, we pray for godliness in our children. We want our children to be successful, sure. I don't want my children to struggle, but I'd rather them struggle and be godly than be rich and be ungodly. I would rather them have hearts and lives of character and be dignified and can walk with their head high and shoulders back, not in arrogance, but in confidence in their Lord. And that's what we should be praying for everybody. How do we oppose worldliness in ourselves and in the world? We begin to pray for godliness to reign in God's people. And when God's people embrace godliness, the ripple effect can be revival. When we begin to see sin for what it is, try to mortify sin in our flesh, that is, kill it, and then turn toward godliness and live in godliness, that's the best thing we can do. What's well, the godly person? What did, who are they? What do they do? They, they imitate Christ, right? The godly person mortifies their flesh, that is, puts it to death for the sake of righteousness. They say no to the world and yes to Christ, The godly person seeks holiness more than relevance. And the godliness is a weapon against the desires of our flesh. If I'm walking in godliness, I'm not bound to be seeking my flesh as much. The more I seek godliness, the less I will seek flesh. And what are we told by Paul? This is good this type of praying, this is good, it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So praying toward this godly fruit in them is good and pleasing to God our Savior. And it's interesting, he calls Him God our Savior. We've seen this phrase before in this book in verse 1 when he's giving the opening salutation, calling God, God our Savior, which normally we would think of Christ there. But it's just kind of reminding us subtly who is the instigator of salvation? It is Yahweh. It is the Lord. It is God Almighty. Then he gives us this statement, who desires all people to be saved, read, who desires all mankind to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is kind of sticky Because you have a phrase here that says that God desires all mankind to be saved and come to a knowledge of a truth, and yet we know that not all mankind are saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Hence, you have the Judases of the world, you have the Satans in the spiritual realm. And so when we think about this word all, let us first talk about this. God, we are told in 1 John, is love. He's not only love but He is love. We are also told that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. We're also told in John's gospel that God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so His desire for humans created in His image is salvation, for them to be renewed, restored, redeemed, ransomed, bought back into life as they were intended to be. And so when we look at this verse who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, we have a question about the word atonement. What is Paul teaching here about the atonement? What is Paul telling us about the atonement of Christ here? Well, is it universal? Is Paul saying that every man and woman and child in the world will eventually be saved? Well, as we've already noted, we can't concede to that because that would be to go against so much of what Scripture teaches. Or is he talking about an an atonement that is sufficient, that is sufficient to save anyone, but it's been made effectual for the people of God? And so in this way, we would be looking at atonement that has now been particularized to a group of people. Well, actually, Paul doesn't solve that tension. He just lets it sit there. Paul lets the tension of this just sit right in front of us, that God desires that all people will be saved, even though we know that all people won't. Can I tell you what I I think is going on here? How subtle, there's a subtle play or there's a subtle idea at work here. I think what Paul is reminding us of is how powerful sin can be so powerful that you have a God of love who desires to give salvation to people made in His image and yet there are people on the earth who absolutely reject it because of sin and death. They choose to live in their sin while God has given the universal call of salvation. Now, the gospel is absolutely universal. It goes out to everybody. That's why we... Have Jesus even saying, the many are called, but few are chosen. And so when we're looking at what Paul is trying to tell us about the redemption, he's not trying to make a as such a precise state on the atonement so much as he's trying to give us the heart of God for humans created in his image. That God wants to save people. And if we can look at this verse and lay down our theological swords and not spar over and just realize what Paul is saying, God wants people to be saved. That is true. Then we can move forward and understand that, yeah, there's a bit of tension here. But God is a saving God, which is exactly why he had just called him God our Savior, to give us the the heart and mind of God. And he says he desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That come to a knowledge of the truth here we could read as synonymous with saved. When we come to a knowledge of the truth, we are coming to God and salvation. And so I appreciate what Paul does here, because he, he doesn't just let it sit in this realm. He doesn't just put this out there. He says, listen, he picks it back up. For this, what he's just said to us, for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped something. (laughs) Sorry about that. There is verse 5 there. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Now, why he follows this call up, this idea of salvation up, with a succinct little gospel message. In verse 15 of chapter 1, Paul had given us succinct gospel message for which Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Here he gives another succinct gospel message when he says, for there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And so, there's one God juxtaposed with all mankind. There's one mediator juxtaposed with all mankind. So one God, one true God, pursues peoples, mankind made in His image. And there is only one way to relationship with that one God, Jesus. Jesus is the only mediator between man and God. And so what does that mean? I'm going to be blunt. What it means is, is we don't pray to Mary to pray to Jesus, to pray to God. We don't pray to saints to pray to Jesus to pray to God. We don't go to a priest to talk to Jesus so that he can talk to God. There is one God, and between us and that one God is Jesus. And so you can go to Jesus just like I can. You don't need me to go to Jesus for you because there is one mediator, and it ain't Brad Williams. It's Jesus. There's one mediator, it's not the pope. It's not a priest. It's not any sort of saint. It's Jesus. And so Paul lays this out very clearly. Jesus is the one who said, come to me. You come to me, and I will give you rest. Jesus is the one that says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one who taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father Not pray to somebody who can then pray to God. Jesus set himself up as the mediator. And I love what Paul does. This mediatorial role is part of Jesus' incarnation. There is one God, one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. The man, Christ Jesus. Why does Paul do that? He is capturing the humanity of Christ. By telling us this, we are reminded that in in, in spite of or in, in connection with Jesus' full divinity, he is fully human. And that divinity and that humanity has to come together for the ransom to work. That humanity and that divinity has to come together for the salvation to work. Without the humanity, it doesn't work. Without the divinity, it doesn't work. Those two things have to come through the incarnation so that we can be saved in Christ. I love it that Paul makes sure he works this into this flow, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, who gave himself. Jesus gave himself willingly. Why? Literally. What is a ransom? You're buying back something. Same word as redemption, very, they're very similar. A ransom is you're buying something, you're paying for something. Jesus bought us back from sin to give us this life so that we could know our full salvation, so that we could come to the Lord in Christ, so that we could have life renewed. This phrase is kind of odd, which is the testimony given at the proper time. It's not exactly clear what Paul is, is driving at there and how, when, how this connects with the next verse or this one. Uh, several different opinions on it. I, I just chose the simplest one that I think it is. In other words, it was perfectly timed. We can, get all, we, can, we can get academic with it, or we can just say really what Paul is trying to say is which was perfectly timed. Timed. The ransom, the incarnation, the cross came right when it was supposed to. And so when we think about the gospel, we proclaim it to everyone because we have no idea whose God's people are out there. And we pray knowing that the gospel does go out. It does redeem as far as the curse is found. And so that gives us confidence in prayer. That gives us confidence in preaching, proclamation. Why do we share the gospel? Because we know it's going to take root somewhere. In fact, Paul wraps this up, and he says, For this, now we're there, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So this truth that we're dealing with here compelled Paul by the Spirit of the Lord to preach to the nations. Now, why does he say, I'm telling the truth, I am not lying? Because somebody there was accusing him of being false. Uh, we, we, that, that's, that parenthetical statement is because Paul had his accusers. The apostle Paul, the man called by God, the man who saw Jesus on, you know, on the road to Damascus, the man who uh, was caught up into the third heavens, he had people who didn't like him too. It's been common in Christendom since the very beginning But Paul presses through all the obstacles. He presses through all the hatred, all the persecution. Why? Because the gospel is worth it. Because somebody did that for you, and you're here today because somebody pressed through. If you're like me, you had some defenses in the beginning. I had defenses up. I laughed. I thought it was a joke. Thank God for people who press through. And the twin pillars of God's redemption is faith and truth. What is Paul preaching? That we grow in faith, that we live by truth. And that as we live by truth, we grow in faith. And the more we grow in each, the more we grow in the other. Beloved, we pray with confidence because because God saves His people. This section in Timothy begins Paul's instruction to Timothy on worship, as I said to you earlier. Prayer is essential not only to our personal growth, but also to our worship. We're called to pray for one another, the larger church around the world, the magistrate, that means people in authority, and a whole host of other things. In fact, we're even called to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. Prayer is not a minor incidental to our faith. It is a major component. It's essential. We won't grow in faith and faithfulness if we're not a praying people. Because prayer reminds us of our deep need for the Lord. That's why Jesus taught us to pray give us this day our daily bread. In other words, give us the very food that we need for the day. So when we think about prayer, it's not always easy to pray. And it certainly isn't easy to pray for those who harm us, but in so doing, we're being obedient. We're walking the life, we're walking the road rather, that God would have us walk. And when we pray, we call the power of the living God to work in hearts, and situations, and all manner of things. And so that's why prayer becomes rich and beautiful and good. Even the simplest of prayers, beloved, the simplest of prayers are rich in the kingdom of God because it is one more opportunity to stand before the living God, have an audience of one, commune, and make our request known. And that's a good thing. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time this morning to consider prayer and how we might be a praying people more and more. Oh, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to see the great need for prayer. Convict us when we choose a lifestyle of not praying. And help us, Father, to be faithful in this way. To choose prayer not because it does, not because we're changing your mind or not because we're working miracles or any sort of thing like that. But to choose prayer because it's communion with you and you've called us to do it. Be with us as we pray. Make us a praying people more and more. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.